about 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, um, I met a, a German monk, German, uh, a German national who was a Buddhist monk, who had been in uh, Burma and Thailand for almost 25 years. And he told me about and showed me this teaching of the Buddha uh, called Anapanasati, the full awareness of breathing. Uh, a teaching which he said uh, was a complete teaching. In other words, it went all the way to liberation. Until that time, the teaching of the breath in Buddhist circles was mainly, I would say entirely, the use of breathing to calm down, to develop serenity, peace, stability, and so forth, which you might say, that's plenty good enough. Let's not get so greedy. Uh, but what he was suggesting is that uh, that was just one piece of the, of the teaching, the first piece. And that laid the foundation uh, for the, the rest of the Buddhist teaching. And moreover, it was the Buddhist practice. The Buddhist personal practice was the full awareness of breathing, which was what he was practicing when he attained enlightenment. It took me a while, and little by little, I came to see and understand uh, that this very simple-sounding sutra was quite a profound one, and no question about it that the breath could be used to go beyond uh, developing calmness. And over the years, I met other teachers of it. There's a whole lineage in the Thai forest tradition stemming back from Ajahn Lee, uh, another one from um, more familiar to some of you, Ajahn Buddha Dasa. There's a very old Vietnamese lineage, which has been presented by Thich Nhat, by Thich Nhat Hanh. Goes back quite a ways to a Vietnamese master who both introduced Zen and this sutra to Vietnam quite a long time ago, four or five hundred years ago or more. Um, the sutra is technically a Theravadan sutra, which is what this center technically is about. There is that sect that teach, has kept this teaching alive. However, it has been taken up by Zen, and if some of you have seen the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, you'll see that such practices as shikantaza, just sitting, seem to have a great deal to do with this sutra, uh, a ripening of it, a maturing of it. So the breath in, in in many different forms, is central to Buddhist practice. Virtually every kind of approach includes the breath in some way. But in this sutra, it's a complete path. It's what is called a way, the way of, the, of breathing, where the breath is used not only to calm yourself, to concentrate the mind, to develop a stable um, serenity from which to live from, but also that the breath could be used to maintain mindfulness of whatever it is you want to be mindful of, so that it was in the service of attention to the world that's other than breath. The breath was used to maintain mindfulness of all that is other than breath, whether you're, if you're sitting and your eyes are closed. By the way, there'll be a 
what I would suggest is that right now, we may as well get into the spirit of the sutra, even for just an evening, some of you who may be new and trying things out. Try and stay in touch with your breathing as the evening unfolds, as the talk goes on. See if you can use it, because what I just said is that the breath can be used to help you maintain mindfulness. See if that's true. See if you can learn to use the breathing. It's kind of very quietly in the background, helping you to stay awake, to not wander off so much, to, let's say, you hear an idea and you agree with it, and then the mind spins out around it, or you hear an idea and you disagree with it, or you're worried about something at home. If you more and more learn how to stay with the breath, it's a kind of anchor. And what it's anchoring us to is the present moment. So we stay anchored right here, right now. So see if you can begin to use that, use that in this situation itself. And just to help us along a little, uh, Marge will hit the bell from time to time. Just be aware of three breaths consciously. And then come back. If I get too long-winded or if you start getting too restless, you have full permission to orchestrate what's going on. Okay. In the Vietnamese version of this sutra, one way in which it was entitled was called protecting the mind, guarding the mind. It's another way to look at it. That is, uh, by maintaining conscious breathing, you're maintaining wakefulness in the present moment. By maintaining wakefulness in the present moment, you are taking care of yourself. You're protecting yourself from tendencies, unexamined urges, that break out and, and issue forth in, in action that produces uh, not such good results. So it's a way of uh, staying in touch with guiding our actions in life just by breathing consciously. Okay. Uh, what I'm hoping to do, I hope it's, it's an experiment, maybe everything is always, but this one is, I uh, hope it's some value. What I'd like to do is go through this entire Sutra, which is in very simple language. It's very profound in what comes out of it, but the language is very, very simple. Uh, over the, next, the period of the next few months and maybe years, quite honestly, I don't know how long it's going to take. What I want to do is start right from the beginning, and whatever in the next few Wednesday nights, however many that is, it may be quite a few, uh, start going through the Sutra, and bringing out, trying to bring out for you, as best as I can, its practical implications. So this is not going to be a, uh, a scholarly exposition, although of necessity some of that must be there. But it's more to uh, go into this sutra right from the beginning, as far as we can go, and for how long, however long it takes. I don't have a timetable. Maybe a few years of, of talks. That's all you're going to be hearing around here. That's all I'll be hearing around here. Until we all do it, then we won't have to listen to it anymore. <laughs> yeah. okay. Okay. And what I would like to do is 
each time review what has gone before um, so that it's cumulative and there's a build-up. So just a few preliminary remarks and then we'll begin tonight uh, and take it a little ways. I don't know how far we'll get tonight. Um, the sutra itself is made up of 16 contemplations of breathing. If any of you want a very nice translation, which is accessible, there are others that are not accessible, very di difficult to get in this country. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's little book on full awareness of breathing, Breathe You Are Alive, is an excellent translation and commentary on it. There are 16 contemplations. If you look at them, especially those of you who have practiced for a while, you'll see that there's a kind of sense to it. They're not just 16 random contemplations. It unfolds in a certain way. Uh, so in that sense, it can be seen as a, a systematic and comprehensive training, a kind of program, a training program, whereby uh, keeping the breath in mind all along, because everything that you do includes the breath, and one thing you can see is that it begins, uh, the, like the emphasis in the first four, the emphasis is primarily on calming the mind, on stopping the wild rush of the mad monkey mind. As the ancients talked about it, the normal mind, the mind that all of us are doing business with, running uh, uh, corporations with, leading countries with, is like a drunken monkey it doesn't end there. Uh, jumping from one branch to another in endless search of bigger and better bananas. <laughs> Those of you who have tried to watch your breath or watch the mind, I don't think it's an exaggeration. So that we're all starting there. So to begin with, uh, we're laying the foundation it's just common sense. That is, if we want, if vipassana is about seeing deeply, it's sometimes called extraordinary seeing or special seeing, understanding. How can we do that if we don't have the capacity to focus, to bring life into focus, to bring our own life in this moment into focus? It would be like trying to take wonderful photographs, uh, but the camera's never in focus. You just get a lot of blurred stuff. It probably wouldn't be too useful. So the logic is pretty simple. Step number one is we start with our, this mind, with monkey mind, and we use the breath uh, to help the mind settle down, to help the mind stop running around so much, stop going wild as it seems to be just in a normal state. Uh, and the medicine for it is the most simple in one sense, the breath. So we use very simple medicine for a very complex malady. The condition of the mind is very complex, and in the modern world, it's a very complex period, perhaps more complex than ever. And we keep generating complex therapies to deal with the complexity. And what This is a little different. It's saying that uh, however complicated the mind is, you need a simple medicine. The simple medicine is to take one thing, and in taking the breath, we're taking a very pleasant thing. And by and large, it's not uh, an issue. 
I mean, I don't think people are going to wax political about the breath. It isn't particularly Buddhist, which is very helpful uh, in this society, because many people who are drawn to meditate don't feel particularly Buddhist about it. I mean, people who come here as well, and there's no attempt really to force you into any belief system or ideology. That's not what it's about. There are understandings, teachings and understandings, but the breath, there's no patent on the breath. It wasn't made in India. We're all breathing, and that's the beauty of it. Part of that, it's very simple. It's very ordinary. It's natural. It's going on as long as we go on. Or we go on as long as it goes on. Maybe that's a better way to put it. And it's always there. And that's not a small part of it. It's always there. When we go to sleep, even when we're in deep sleep, there's something that's looking after us. There's something that keeps the breath going. We don't have to check it. It just does what it has to do. So it's, a, it's watching a, the lawfulness of nature, a very basic law at work, only instead of it being like the tides or the rising and setting of the sun or the change of the seasons, you're watching something just as basic in yourself. I just want to keep going and forget about talking. I have to talk though, right? That's my job tonight. So we begin uh, at the beginning by just learning how to calm down, how to feel a little bit more at peace, how to feel happier. It's a very simple way to be happy as you begin to learn how to stay in touch with the breath, and some of you who have been practicing know this is so. It's not that you have to wait a long time for it. Even if it's just one breath, you know that it's possible to just be sitting simply, with having no ambitious or elaborate projects in mind, just simply sitting and breathing, and to feel very happy. Something happens as all of that complexity that fills up the mind, all of those stirrings, vexation, urges, as they all become unified around one basic process, the breathing. So in a sense, we exchange all of the stories that the mind is making up, all of our anxiety, all of our urges, anticipations of the future, regrets about the past, confusion, love, everything, all of the many stories, the the drama that makes us a human being, the richness. This is not to demean that. And we're learning how, at least temporarily, to exchange that for just breathing in and breathing out. And it turns out that in doing that, at least sometimes, it's more than a fair trade. That what you get back, if you are willing to come to the simplicity, is certainly quite worthwhile. The mind settles into itself. It learns how to rest in the naturalness of the breathing, how to, how to come to rest in the naturalness of the breathing. Now, to begin with, many of us have uh, problems with breathing. Perhaps we're controlling the breath. No, perhaps we, we do, as anyone who's tried this knows. We're trying to get air in quickly or push it out more quickly or hold on to it.
and we can't pay attention because we're so intrigued by all the stuff in our mind. And so the practice is a, a skillful use of how to, little by little, at least temporarily, to let go of the cares of the day and to just breathe. And once you find out that there really is something useful in doing that, it's definitely a good thing to do, at least sometimes. Of course, more and more you want to do it, because what it brings with it brings with itself an increase in peace, in joy, and even in physical health. This is not talk, talked about so much in the Buddhist teaching. Uh, the Buddhist teaching is primarily, the emphasis when you read it is, very much on the development of wisdom and compassion, on human liberation. And of course, here and there, definitely it's made very clear, the Buddha talks about this sutra as being good for the health, but doesn't go into it so much as, let's say, modern science could. But one byproduct of just simply uh, developing that ability to be with the breathing from time to time is that what it brings with it an improved quality of breathing. Again, we're not controlling the breath, but just be, by becoming sensitive to the breathing, by be, becoming conscious of breathing, something happens to the quality of the breathing. When the quality of the breath changes, all the bodily, all the bodily systems are improved, all the organs, everything. The breath is that basic. After all, it's life itself, isn't it? You know, we come out of our mother's uh, womb and we start to breathe. And in a certain sense, at that moment, life is set in motion. And then at a certain moment, we breathe in, we breathe out, and then we don't breathe in again. And we call that death. So this is a very powerful process that we're paying attention to. Usually it's one that we overlook. It's very unassuming. So we don't care so much about it. An example, if anyone has had problems with drinking, you understand what I'm saying, or any other addiction. I think you could say, I will say, that we have an addiction to thinking, that uh, the mind is addicted to describing itself to itself all day long, a good part of the day. Check and see. If you haven't taken a look, my, my mind does that how you were, how you are now, how you will be after you do, if you listen to this sutra carefully. Okay. And it's compulsive and we go over the same ground hundreds and thousands of times. He said and she said and he said and she said. <laughs> and then I will and then he won't. Then I, um, but let's say if you're uh, very much um, drawn to alcohol or food or whatever it is, let's say it's alcohol, Do you think it's very difficult to convince you at, the, at that time, to convince a person at that time, that here's a wonderful glass of clear spring water, fresh spring, spring water. It's just come down from this glacier. It's just really good, wonderful. You don't want that. We want something much more interesting. If not alcohol, at least a mixed drink or Coca-Cola or something, or uh, a juice, or now it's got to be a blend of at least four or five juices. <laughs> yeah. You know, just straight apples, not enough, crayon apple. No, they don't put pineapple in yet, but you know, that kind of thing. Okay, and someone's saying, but look, here's just clear water, fresh, clear, fresh water. Nah, we don't want it. The breath is a little bit like that. The mind is coming up with all of these different things. Now, if these wonderful 
concoctions of the mind were so indeed wonderful, great, we wouldn't need to be here. We wouldn't need to do this practice. But the truth is, if you watch carefully, you'll see most of the content, or certainly a lot of the content of the mind, does not lead to peace. The mind is hankering a good deal of the time. It gets what it wants, and then it pauses. The relief may be not so much the thing that we purchased, makes us feel good if we buy something we wanted, but at least for a little while we don't have to hanker after anything because we satisfied a desire. Whew. And then it starts in again. New person, and you've got to get a new person. I'm tired of eating Indian food. I want, what's this uh, Serbo-Croatian food? The <laughs> okay. is okay, but I hear there's an even newer, better technique from another planet. <laughs> And the, the first stage of the practice saying, let it go, just breathe. Let the mind do that. Let the mind rant and rave. Let it claw at things. Just thank you very much. And just go back to the simple in-breath and out-breath. You can learn how to do that, at least sometimes. If your mind is panicking right now, thinking it's afraid that you're not going to listen to it or become victimized by it, don't worry, it'll come back. As we learn how to do it, it's more... Um, to begin with, to sit. And that, the first four have to do with that. Have to do with calming the mind, unifying it, unifying the mind, the breath, and the body around the breath. The breath uh, becomes the medium by which the mind and body are unified, brought together. We move from that, the next four have to do with feelings. In Buddhist psychology, feelings are not quite what we think of as emotions. They're simpler. It's uh, when, we when we're in contact with the world through any sense organ, uh, check to see this. Right at this moment, whether it's a sight or a sound or whatever, a taste, it will be experienced immediately as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So it's very, very important. Because if it's pleasant, then we want it. If it's unpleasant, we don't want it. We want to get rid of it. If it's neutral, space out city. We just get bored. And then we start find, trying to find something pleasant. So you could say a good deal of the day is spent uh, with a butterfly net, trying to get as many pleasant sensations as we can. The best sounds, the best uh, sights, the best tastes. I, I don't think I could do this justice, but some of you know Corrado Pensa from Italy. And he described to me, I, I won't be able to, but I can't resist. He was in a form of therapy in Italy uh, many years ago, and I think it was Gestalt or some kind of sensory, and it was one way to do it. And his assignment was to come to this therapy session with something that he loved for each sense. So he had his favorite, he came, he described, when he comes this summer, I'll make him tell the story. He came with uh, his favorite, a tape of his favorite piece of music, a delicious dessert, uh, a work of art that he really liked. Uh, I don't know, some for, for thinking, his favorite poem to read. Uh, he applied uh, some kind of aftershave lotion or some for the, for the body. Did I leave anything out? Let's see, taste, smell. Oh, yeah, uh, something for the smell, uh, incense, a very good kind. Of, and the assignment was, and he, and he describes it, sitting there trying to enjoy all of his senses at the same time. <laughs> It seemed to me a caricature, you know, like a cartoon of what 
sometimes we seem to be trying to do. Or if we don't know how to do it, find a, a workshop that will teach us how to do that. He never went back. Because that, that's, how would you like to go through life like that? Trying to ha- always trying to get the best sound, the best taste, the best smell. Got to have it. So the second one has to do with feeling. It starts to become more fine. In a sense, the 16 contemplations have a direction in terms of coarseness and fineness. The first I have to do with the body. The first four have to do with the body, which is the most accessible. It's easier to be mindful of, by and large. Then it goes to feelings. Feelings are more subtle and much more difficult because they're more highly charged. The third set of four, they're all, they come in four sets of four, make up the 16, have to do with the mind itself. What's in the mind right now? What is it colored with? Is it grabbing after something? If so, what does that feel like? Is it pushing something away? What is that like? Is it confused? What's it, what's it like to feel confused? And if none of these are happening, let's say, what's the mind uh, that is free of confusion? What does that feel like? Or a mind that isn't grasping after anything? Or isn't pushing anything away? So that's the third. Now, in the first, uh, often we're using the breath alone, exclusively, and the breath and the body, the first four. Then we continue to stay with the breathing, only now we study the feelings while staying in touch with breathing. So that the breathing helps us maintain mindfulness of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, anywhere that they turn up. And then it gets more subtle when we get to the mind itself. So in the third set of four, we're examining the mind itself while breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in, I'm aware that there's craving in the mind. Breathing out, I'm aware there's craving. Breathing in, I'm aware that there's anger in the mind. Breathing out, I'm aware that the anger is gone. What the mind feels like without anger. And so now it's becoming more subtle. The mind is, for most of us, the hardest thing to observe directly. And then the fourth set of four, we come into pure vipassana, pure insight, pure wisdom. And what happens now is uh, we've covered 12. And now any or all of those 12 can now be viewed from the point of view of understanding. To begin with, this is Buddhist, the teachings of the Buddha, the understanding that everything that arises passes away, impermanence. So we can begin to see, for example, the fifth having to do with feelings has to do with developing very joyful feelings or very peaceful feelings. And when that comes up in the mind, to see it and to see that it's impermanent. Breathing in, I'm aware of great joy. Breathing out, I'm aware of great joy. But when we start with the 13th, we then begin to see that that state of joy, we look at it and we see that it doesn't last forever. The joy becomes something else. Or, even in the first few, which have to do with length of breathing, long and short breath, we see that the length keeps changing. Or whichever one it is. So you can go back, or you can take the breath itself. No breath is the same. You can study impermanence. You can study suffering. You can study emptiness of self. For those of you who are new, this may not, may not mean much. Uh, but vipassana, insight, is insight into impermanence. It's seeing that everything that arises passes away and lacks self. It lacks an enduring core. And of course, as that starts to happen, the uh, emphasis on letting go and on liberation starts to become central in the practice. But the foundation has been laid. 
before that by uh, helping the mind to become more calm, helping the body to become more stable, becoming more familiar with a variety of feelings so that we're at home with our feelings. We're at home with, let's say, suffering feelings or happy feelings. We know what it feels like. We've learned how to turn to them and to become intimate with them. We've learned what different mind states feel like. We've become intimate with our own mind. And then with that as a foundation, we then begin to examine that which we've become familiar with and we begin to see that it arises and passes away and that it lacks an inherent nature. And that uh, is a prelude to letting go. Letting go uh, perhaps in a more accelerated way. And the letting go is what takes us to freedom. Letting go of attachment to any of these things. This is a scheme, a teaching scheme. So don't think that you have to go from 1 to 16 and then make it a kind of a going from uh, being a freshman to getting a PhD. It isn't like that. We, it's very easy for us to make it into another kind of achievement. This, is a, this practice is something you just do for the rest of your life, that's all. And as you unfold, you may find particular contemplations, particular ones of the 16 are of great interest to you. You're drawn to it, so then you would work with that. I've always loved number nine, so I do that a lot. You'll have to read what that is. The mind. In fact, the 16 can be reduced to two steps. Anything that helps you use the breath to become calm, that would subsume a major part of what we're trying to do. And then the second step is to use that calm to investigate. And that's we're in vipassana. And you can even collapse the two, perhaps, into one step. When the calmness and the insight uh, have been so practiced and interchanged that you can't really separate them. They're, they are unified in a practice in Zen called shikantaza, just sitting. That may very well be it. It's in vipassana as well. At that point, uh, there's only one step. It's a very calm and concentrated mind examining itself. Okay, why don't we turn to the sutra itself? There's a sutra opening verse. If you would like, you can uh, accompany me with it. Help me, I'm not much of a singer, but a chanter, I'll do my best. I'll repeat it, it's in English. And... I say it whenever I read a, one of these sacred texts. Or it, the scripture is equivalent to Christian and Jewish scriptures or Islam or whatever religion you know better. So let me just say it in English and then if you, those of you who wish to can just join me, we'll do it. Okay. The Dharma is deep and lovely. The Dharma is deep and lovely. We now have a chance to see it. We now have a chance to see it. 
study it and practice it. We vow to realize its true meaning. We vow to realize its true meaning. The Sutta on the full awareness of breathing. Sutta is the Pali language. Sutra is in Sanskrit. You'll see it in both. And I more often than not use sutra because I just habit conditioning. Anapanasati Sutta, it's from the Majjhima Nikaya 118, the middle-length sayings, for those of you who want to see it in the original. And it means mindfulness with breathing. Okay. Well, what's mindfulness? Let's start right there. We use that word a lot around here. Uh, just very briefly, uh, we human beings have uh, an extraordinary capacity, which we perhaps take for granted until it's brought out by teachings like this. That is, we have the capacity to live out our life. Everyone's living out their life. If you're an animal, you're living out your life. But what's unique about us is that we have the capacity to be conscious of living out our life as we live out our life. We can be fully present to our life as we live it out. What does that mean? Uh, I can just give you a few suggestions. The one image that's used a lot for mindfulness <clears throat> is that it's mirror-like. So its job is to reflect what's in front of it. And a good mirror just reflects just what's there. The, the value of the mirror is that it's nothing. And as you start painting over the mirror to try and make it more beautiful, it loses its value. Then you, value, then you look into it. And maybe you make it beautiful so when you look into it, you see yourself a different way. But that wouldn't be a useful mirror. We want a mirror that shows us exactly the way it is. So when we put our face in front of it, it points out those pimples and blemishes and the little nicks and all the rest of it. Another gray hair popped up. Okay. We want a mirror. Maybe we don't. But anyway, that's what a good mirror is. A mirror just shows you what's there. It has no other goal. It's not trying to do anything other than that. Its job is that. Okay. It's before thinking. Mindfulness is not thinking. It's preconceptual, because you can be mindful of thinking. So the mirror can show that thought is happening. <coughs> the only time that mindfulness happens is in the present moment. If you miss it, that's it. What you would have after that would be memory. You could be mindful of the memory but then it would be mindful of something that's over, uh, the trace of something that's gone. Also, it's unbiased. This is what we're actually perfecting, developing, refining, and using the breath. It's unbiased in the sense that it's not for or against. It's another way of saying it's a mirror. It's not for or against what's in front of it. It has no goal. It has no goal other than the seeing. It's not trying to add to what's happening, subtract from what's happening, improve upon what's happening. It just reflects what's happening. Also, when it's done, it's a, a, a form of participation. And this is a, a difficult one. There's a lot of confusion on this. Many people think that mindfulness is sort of like being pulled back, sort of with binoculars from a, a mountain peak or something. 
the way it's being used here is that you are an observing participant. You're fully living out your life, and what we're developing is wakefulness in the midst of that living. So that even it's, it's not limited to sitting in a meditation hall. You can be doing something quite demanding, quite dynamic. It's possible to learn how to stay wakeful in the midst of that. So we're observing in the midst of participating in our life. In that sense, it's not detachment like that. It isn't. You, it is staying awake, and if you mean that as detachment, okay. But you're in the midst of, you're in touch. You feel whatever it is. And in this case, what, what it is is the breath to begin with. We're learning how to become very familiar with breathing, really familiar with breathing. All the different twists and turns that a breath has. Section 1 begins, Thus have I heard. If you've read, looked at some of the Buddhist teachings, you know you've seen this phrase many, many times. Have any of you seen it before in other teachings, Thus have I heard? Yeah. Uh, Pretty much all the sutras begin that way. Thus have I heard. Okay, so right from the beginning, what does that mean? Thus have I heard. That's... Ananda speaking. Ananda was the Buddha's cousin and also one of his closest disciples. And what he's attempting to convey by saying, thus have I heard, he's attempting to depersonalize the teachings. He's saying, it's not me. It's not Ananda's. It's not Ananda. It's the Buddha. I heard it. I am transmitting it to you from the Buddha. So in that sense, and it's an attempt to establish the source, to legitimate the source, perhaps to have us perk up and listen more carefully. Saying, if it's just me, Ananda, it might be interesting, but not all that interesting. But it's the Buddha. Now, there's a story in back of it. Uh, For the first 20 years or so, the Buddha had many attendants. uh, He didn't have any one attendant. So many different monks took turns helping him out. And then at a certain point, he decided he, only, he wanted to have one attendant all the time. Just to show you that these were human beings just like ourselves, uh, there then was a, a kind of competition of who would be the Buddha's attendant, kind of a jockeying for position. Ananda was one who didn't do that. Of course, that's, he got it naturally. <laughs> yeah. So Ananda was asked by the Buddha, would you be my attendant? And Ananda agreed, but he had some conditions, and the conditions are important. He said, first of all, uh, I, want to, I want you to agree that uh, because you're the Buddha, you're going to be invited into all kinds of homes, and you're always going to be given the best food, the best robes, uh, the best things, to, the best of everything. And if I'm with you, I'm going to be getting that too. And that would be endanger my practice too much. So can you leave me out of that? I don't want to be part of that. Would any of us get the point? <laughs> We'd want to ride in on the action, right? Yeah. But then getting even more uh, appropriate for what we're doing tonight, uh, he made the Buddha agree, so that if he ever had any questions about a Dharma talk that the Buddha gave, uh, he had a right to question the Buddha and for the Buddha to respond until Ananda 
was satisfied that he understood what the Buddha was saying. The Buddha agreed to that. And then he said, also, if sometimes I miss a Dharma talk, if I can't be present, when you come back, I want you to agree that I have the right to ask you to repeat the talk so that I can hear it. Now, uh, Ananda had a, a uh, colossal memory. And so you can see where this is all leading. Three months after the Buddha died, there was a convening of a bunch of enlightened meditators, yogis, to try to um, put together the essence of what the Buddha was saying. And Ananda was central because he, many people had heard teachings here and there. Ananda was present all the time and he had this great memory. And so he was there to help. Uh, they all had to agree on a teaching before they made it, before it was admitted as being part of the teaching. And so when he says, thus have I heard, uh, that's what he's saying. He's saying, this is as close as we can get to the Buddha himself. It's not me, I'm just a vehicle for it. I'm going to read to you from the sutta. Thus have I heard. At that time, the Buddha was staying in Savati, in the eastern park, with many well-known and accomplished disciples, including Sariputra, Mahamogalana, Mahakasapa, Mahakachiana, I'll skip, you, some of you probably have heard a few of these names, and Ananda. The senior bhikkhus, bhikkhus uh, is often translated as monk, but the, the talk was not directed just to monks. And this teaching is not just for monks or nuns. It's for everyone. It's for lay people as well. But at that time, the most serious meditators were by and large, most often, were monks. And later on, nuns entered. The senior bhikkhus in the community were diligently instructing bhikkhus who were new to the practice. Some instructing ten students. Get a feeling for this. In other words, it's a real-life situation. It's not some mythological thing. These are human beings like ourselves, trying to, who come with a monkey mind, who've gathered together and are trying to help each other. It's what we now call a sangha, a community of practitioners. Some instructing 10 students, some 20, some 30, some 40. And in this way, the bhikkhus new to the practice, little by little, made great progress. So we're all doing that with each other here and many other places around the world. That night, the moon was full and the Pavarana ceremony was held to mark the end of the rainy season retreat. Uh, at the time of the Buddha and, and to this day in Asia, and that's why the three-month course is a three-month course, uh, there was retreats during the rainy season, but there's no rainy season in New England, so it's done during the winter. At the end of the three-month retreat, because you couldn't do very much when it was raining so hard, so it was a good time for intensive practice. So people would gather together and go inside and do contemplative work for three months. And at the end of it, there was a Pavarana ceremony. And what that was, what we, in our language, would be a request for feedback from everyone who did the retreat with you. In other words, did you see any way in which I was off? My practice is off or how I was off? And people would then tell them. So it was an at everyone was an at uh, attempting to continue to learn. You've been practicing with you three months. Is there anything I should know? Yeah, you're... Wash your socks once in a while. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Lord Buddha, the awakened one, was sitting in the open. Try to be there. You know, all of us be there. It's a real place. It's just an, another Dharma talk being given. 
was sitting in the open and his disciples, the bhikkhus, were gathered around him. The Blessed One surveyed the calm and silent bhikkhu community and then spoke. Bhikkhus, we are certain of this system of practice. Bhikkhus, we are convinced by this system of practice. For this reason you, reason, you should stir up even more energy for reaching the things which have not been reached, for arriving at things that have not yet been arrived at, and for making clear that which has not yet been made clear. To encourage your efforts, I will stay here until the next full moon day. So what the Buddha is saying is this was such a wonderful retreat. People were really growing. Uh, it ends at three months, and he said, I'm going to stay one extra month. When they heard that the Lord Buddha was going to stay at Savati for another month, bhikkhus throughout the country began traveling there to study with him. The word was out. The senior, more advanced bhikkhus continued teaching the bhikkhus new to the practice even more ardently. Some were instructing 10 students, some 20, some 30, some 40. With this help, the newer bhikkhus, let's just, when you hear that, think of newer meditators. The newer meditators or newer yogis were able little by little to continue their progress in understanding. When the next full moon day arrived, the Buddha, seated under the open sky, surveyed the calm and silent bhikkhu community and began speaking. Bhikkhus, this community is pure and good. At its heart, it is without useless and boastful talk and is thoroughly established in the essential Dhamma and that it's, in Buddhism there's something called merit, that is, to help people in their practice is of great benefit for you. Even, this is not, you're not meditating necessarily, you're supporting someone who is, you're helping them in whatever way you do it. Anything will do. That, that is beneficial for you in terms of your own karma in this teaching. O bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus in this assembly who have already realized the fruit of arahanthood destroyed every root of affliction, laid aside every burden, and attained right understanding and emancipation. There are also bhikkhus who have already cut off the five, first five ropes of bondage and realized the fruit of never returning to the cycle of birth and death. There are those who have thrown off the first three ropes of bondage and realized the fruit of returning once more. They have cut off the roots of greed, hatred, and ignorance, and only need to return to the cycle of birth and death one more time. There are those who have thrown off the three ropes of bondage and attained the fruit of stream-enterer, heading steadily to the awakened state. There are those who practice the four foundations of mindfulness. There are those who practice the four right efforts and those who practice the four basis, bases of success. There are those who practice the five faculties, those who practice the five powers. Those who practice the seven factors of awakening and those who practice the Noble Eightfold Path. There are those who practice loving-kindness, those who practice compassion, those who practice joy, and those who practice equanimity. There are those who practice the Nine Cemetery Contemplations and those who practice the observation of impermanence. There are also bhikkhus already practicing the full awareness of breathing. Now, uh, any one of those would take at least the whole evening, so I'm not going to do that, I'm, but I'm going to get, we will be going into some of them in more detail as the sutra unfolds. But uh, the Buddha was a very skillful teacher, so it, basically there's really only one teaching, it's the Four Noble Truths. 
that there is suffering, there's a cause for the suffering, there is an end to it, and there's a path that brings us to that cessation or end. However, he uh, used a somewhat different framework to teach depending on who he was teaching. It's what is called upayo, a skillful means. So depending on who he was teaching, he would rearrange these materials in slightly different ways so that it was more fruitful for the people that he was teaching. Uh, all of them, everything that was mentioned here, fits into the Four, four Noble Truths. They're all perhaps emphasizing one aspect or another. As the Buddha himself says, just as every animal's footstep fits into the footstep of the elephant. So that the Four Noble Truths is the... Uh, it has to, that's it. Okay. And these are all somewhat different versions. Now, he's about to teach the full awareness of breathing, but what he's saying is there are people with all... You, many of you are doing very beautifully, and you have all these different methods, uh, and some have attained such and such, and some of you are already working with the breath. He had given teachings on the breath before in a somewhat scattered way. And in this, this sutra is the only sutra that we know of where he put all of what he wanted to say about the breath in one talk, under one umbrella. We move now into section two. We will tonight get far enough for there to be some homework for you to do, because, you know, over the holidays. <laughs> Homework's not the right term, but I, I can't help it. I'm, it's, my, it's my conditioning, you know. Got to get a better term than that. Obikus, the method of being fully aware of breathing. That is what Anapanasati is, the method of being fully aware of breathing. Please listen carefully. If developed and practiced continuously, will have great rewards and bring great advantages. It will lead to success in practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. If the method of the four foundations of mindfulness is developed and practiced continuously, it will lead to success in the practice of the seven factors of awakening. The seven factors of awakening, if developed, and practice continuously will give rise to understanding and liberation of the mind. The four foundations of mindfulness uh, is, I, I actually have already covered that. When we talked about the body, feelings, the mind, and then what are called dharmas itself. Uh, it's using the breath to develop the four foundations of mindfulness. In the future, I'll go into this in more detail because I'll be bringing this in as we go through each of the contemplations. Uh, my judgment is that tonight, it's just, just for you to understand that by paying attention to the breathing, by breathing consciously, uh, the, your overall mindfulness grows. And as it grows, it unfolds and becomes what are called the seven factors of enlightenment. That is, a mind that's ripe and ready to taste enlightenment uh, in this scheme of things, is made up of seven qualities that have been highly developed. Qualities like mindfulness, qualities like investigation, qualities like uh, equanimity, qualities like joy, etc. Okay. What is the way to develop and practice continuously the method of full awareness of breathing so that the practice will be rewarding and offer great benefit? 
Okay, so now we're starting to get into the practice. How do you do this that you've been talking about? And the Buddha says, It's like this, bhikkhus. The yogi goes into the forest, or to the foot of a tree, or to any empty dwelling, and sits stably with crossed legs, holding his body quite straight, and arouses mindfulness. Breathing in, he knows that he is breathing in. He or she knows that they're breathing in. Uh, Breathing out, he or she knows that they're breathing in, uh, breathing out. So uh, he gives the first, before we've even gotten to the first contemplation, he's actually given the basic one, because they're all variations on this one, breathing in and breathing out. Let's um, say a few words on some of these. Okay, the yogi goes into the forest or to the foot of a tree or to an empty built dwelling. The theme here, or the sense underlying this statement, is to take yourself out of familiar set, your familiar setting, which for many of us means our home. If you can get to a forest, this is a place where there will be a minimum of, let's say, other human stimulation, which gets the mind going. <laughs> human activities, certain kinds of noise, so that the forest is used as a prototype of a, a, a place where this practice can happen because it's peaceful, natural, simple, so forth. And it's also away from your customary surroundings. It's not in your living room. When, and, when you, and then he also, he also mentions an, um, the foot of a tree, or to an empty dwelling. I would say probably what most of us are doing is an empty dwelling. And what that's getting at is that it's a recognition of the difficulty of learning to do this practice uh, in the midst of your normal surroundings. For example, if you do it in your home uh, and you start to contemplate your breath, perhaps within a few moments you're going to start contemplating the refrigerator (laughs) or the TV or the bed. You know, or whatever else, because it's familiar and it's a setting which has been, this is where we practice craving. It's like a headquarters for craving. (laughs) We've set it up, right? Everything takes sometimes years to get it just the way you want it. Right carpet, the right couch, the right refrigerator. It can be stocked with, you know, for those, for certain days, certain kinds of instant foods that not for other days and enough herb tea and regular tea and, you know, all kinds of things, coffee and decaf and coffee substitutes and, and juices made of five different juices. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, it, as you know, those of you who have tried to simply know when you're breathing in and know when you're breathing out, that there's strong competition for that with all these other things. So, that's one of the reasons that CIMC exists. This is just a stage set. You know, but it helps you extricate yourself, and many of you already know this, that you can, in some ways, it's easier for you to meditate here than it is at home. Some of that's because we have company. And some of that is because it's all set up to really protect us and to help us do this. Now, this is not forever, as much as, you know, I I live here and all, but it isn't forever. Uh, If the only way you can meditate is you've always got to be at CIMC or IMS or whatever other initials, you know, wouldn't, that would be a rather limited way to go through life, I think. So it's to strengthen ourselves. You know, just like when you're a child, you might need, uh, let's say if you're learning to swim, you might need uh, water wings 
or you might need training wheels before you ride a two-wheel bicycle. So this is like that, this place here. Is, it's not only that, but it's certainly to help us get to the point where we can meditate anywhere. And of course, as you know, those of you who have been here, you're encouraged right from the beginning to bring the practice into everywhere. But the sitting practice, to launch it, really needs some help. And so that's what's being said there. Um, To sit stably with crossed legs, holding the body quite straight and arouses mindfulness. Uh, In some interpretations, that means the full lotus posture or the half lotus posture. Uh, But finally, of course, it's whatever posture you devise for yourself that combines as best as you can, and it's something that has to be learned as well, the combinations of stability and comfort. You have to find a position, a way of positioning your body, and it can include a chair or a stool, or you know, sometimes people just have to lie down. Because you'll see finally it's not about the body. It's not about putting the body in full lotus, it's about putting the mind in the full lotus. And for the mind to be stable. But if you can think of it this way, imagine if your body uh, learned how to really sit in a stable and comfortable way. I, ha- I say imagine because you know that for many, for many of us, there's a lot of pain when you sit physically. But you can learn that over a, uh, a period of time. It's what is called, the ancients called, acquiring a seat. Just by plumping your bun down on the cushion doesn't mean you've acquired a seat just by dropping on the cushion. Acquiring a seat actually takes years, in my experience. What it means is learning how to, for the body to sit so that it's really stable and comfortable. Now, of course, it won't always be comfortable and stable because it's impermanent, especially if you sit longer and longer. But relatively speaking, you can definitely, uh, the body can learn how to sit. And once that happens, you have a foundation. Just think of it this way, those of you who know this practice, let's say if your body is really stable and comfortable, just imagine like a mountain, solid as a mountain. Let's say it's like that, and the breath is flowing naturally because the breath tends to be influenced by the posture. That's if you can sit straight and comfortable, or sit with a straight back and comfortable, not only is the breath helped, but the alertness has helped too, because posture affects the mind. If, if when we're depressed, we're like that. When we're angry, we're like that. And so what this is, it's not a kind of West Point erectness. It's a balanced, maybe it is West Point, I don't know. You know, but it's balanced and comfortable. But it, just for the moment, imagine if your body could sit like a mountain, be that stable, or like a strong tree, really rooted in the ground. And now fear comes along. You know, because we're asked in Vipassana, it's not just following the breath, but it's using the breath to help us maintain mindfulness as we investigate one of those factors of enlightenment, the capacity to investigate. As we investigate loneliness, or anger, or fear, or boredom, or terror, or whatever, anguish, anxiety. Okay, so now at least the physical part is stable. It's like having a tripod. So as the body learns how to sit, as it acquires a seat, it's helping the mind, which is helped by the conscious breathing, to be strong enough to be uh, unwavering, unwavering as it meets whatever turns up. And we don't know what's going to turn up from moment to moment. So can you see how we're beginning from the ground up to develop a uh, foundation for being able to be 
so that everything is workable. What we're attempting to do at this center is to help you develop confidence that no matter what turns up in your life, it's workable. No one can control what's going to turn up, either in your mind or in your life situation. You know, it's so uncertain. But what you can learn in the practice is, that, is confidence in that it's workable. Okay, now one of the things that helps with that is if you can learn how to sit, and especially in times when it's difficult, when things happen that are difficult, uh, death, uh, family problems, and so forth, uh, illness, if we can position ourselves in such a way as to look very, very carefully at what it is we're going through, mourning or whatever, you can imagine it's a big help if the body can do that. So that's what the Buddha is doing. He's setting it up. And then he's saying, uh, when you breathe in, know that you're breathing in. When you breathe out, know that you're breathing out. And I think we're going to end with that. That's the homework. We're, when we come back, we'll, we're not going to review everything that was said. But we'll go through some, go into a bit more detail about a few other things and start to build on that. But before we um, end off tonight, and th- there can be time for some questions, uh, begin with a fresh, begin anew with just the next time you sit, even if it's right here or when you go home, and look at the breath as if for the first time. And, and start to contemplate the fact that you're breathing in and you're breathing out. What is that? What's going on there? You know, it's, we can say, well, it's not, you know, the lungs are filling up and then they're emptying. Yeah, but not as an idea. But it's just the simple fact that, hmm, the air, something fills up and then it empties. Fills up and again, not the words. Or you could feel things, you could feel it coming and going, coming and going. Or forget everything I just said. You know, just come at it really with a beginner's mind and just very openly contemplate what is, what is breathing in and breathing out. Not thinking, but just really experience it. See what that's like. Because what you're contemplating is the life process itself. If you get bored with the following the breath, as, as we know, we often do, just pause for a moment and understand you're bored with something that if it weren't there, you wouldn't be there to be bored. <laughs> You'd be what is called dead. So it's a very unassuming character, this breath, very modest, but everything else is premised on it, in a sense. Okay, what I want to leave you with is, you know, most of you already have sitting practices and are trying to bring mindfulness into daily life. At this point, in being aware that you're breathing in and that you're breathing out, is also the time in this sutra to introduce the use of conscious breathing to help you be awake in daily life, to help you use the breath to maintain mindfulness in a variety of situations that make up your life. Whatever that is, a supermarket, a relationship, because that's what the sutra is saying, that you can learn by breathing consciously to be more fully in the present moment, to be more fully in touch with what's actually happening. Because as you stay in touch with the breathing while being involved with whatever it is else you're doing, observing nature or sweeping the floor, when you're doing that, there's much, the unnecessary thinking is cut down dramatically. You know how the mind is endlessly going on about itself? Okay, as you become more attuned to the breath, that, start, that chatter starts to thin out a bit. It's quite a relief. And so when that thins out, that means you can be more real to yourself and to anyone else. If you come home and your child runs up uh, and wants a hug and you're all preoccupied with the cares of the day, 
you know, it's a mechanical hug. It, you know, we all know that, you know, yes, uh, oh, daddy, mommy, you know, so, yeah, hi, hi, hi. You know, but you're not there because you're not real because you're away. The body is here and the child is, is here, but you're not. So if you turn to the breath sometimes, just one or two breaths often, and suddenly it lifts you out of that dream state, you know, where you're just going on and on and on about something, and the child suddenly emerges as real again. There's a child hugging you, and you look at it, you know that there's a child that you're hugging while you're breathing in and breathing out. So the, 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 the in-breath, knowing that you're breathing in, breathing out, can help you open up to whatever it is that you're doing. So the practice right already, before we've even gotten to the first contemplation, is not only about formal sitting and walking, but it's also about whatever else makes up your life. Okay, uh, any uh, questions about what we've been talking about or about this sutra? Those who have to leave, Thanksgiving is here, and happy Thanksgiving to you all. By the way, I'm going away for a couple of months for my own personal retreat, not under a tree, sort of in a house near a forest, as part of a forest. Yeah. You can see I'm not in the present moment anymore. I'm already there. <laughs> Get back here. Okay, okay. Yeah. One problem that I've noticed um, using the breath and, and, and as a practice throughout the day is I have a tremendous tendency to control it. Yes. And it's uh, it's something that I even when I see that I do it I do it over and over again. I right. Always, I find I almost end up not hyperventilating, but to control it. Such that it, it, I notice it. Well, I'm really trying to regulate it. Is there any anything you can do other than just continually notice that tendency? Yes, but you see, the noticing of the tendency is the best thing you can do, because most other ways, then you try to control the controlling. So you're in, you, you, it's an infinite regress where you're trying not to control. The truth is that that's a large part of what we're learning, is trust. See, we don't trust. Uh, the breath to fill up as much as it needs to and to empty the way it wants to. And we're learning surrender, which is another way of saying trust. In the practice, we're learning how to surrender to... Uh, one of the meanings of Dharma is natural law. And we're studying the secrets of, of nature, but in ourselves. And the breath, of course, is so obviously a, a phenomenon of nature. So we're learning how to hand ourselves over to the breath and let it follow its own nature. Now, to begin with, we can't do that because we have a lot of calculation, scheming, control. Uh, moreover, if we hadn't heard, for example, the fact that you just got all this talk about how wonderful, and the, Buddha's, the Buddha attained enlightenment using this, this practice. So now, of course, the ego hears this. And before that, it was just breathing. Now it hears that there's, uh, you know, there's, some, there's some money to be made on this. <laughs> there's a buck to be made on following the breath. It's not ordinary anymore. So it wants to get credit for you breathing in and breathing out, and that compounds it. Do you, does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. very familiar. Right. So in a sense, we've given you a kind of suffering that you didn't have before you... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, 
But you can see it. And uh, what you're calling the problem is really the, the territory of learning, in other words, the, the ground of learning how to trust. Uh, a lot is symbolized in breathing. In breathing in, what is symbol, symbol, that's symbolic of filling up in life. There's a time to fill up in life, in other words, to, to eat, to make love, to, to do things, and there's a time to let go. It's always like that. It's never only one or the, or the other. And then there's a time to exhale. There's a time to take in nourishment. There's a time to let waste out. There's a time to be born and to die and so forth. This is going on all the time. So we're learning that on the breath. And as you look at your breathing, you learn a lot about yourself. Some people are able to, uh, are able to let the breath go, but they then they hurry to breathe it in more quickly. And other people, it's the other way around. And we're all a little bit different on it. If you can not uh, see it so much as a problem, uh, mindfulness itself will set things right. And then uh, what we're learning is more and more how to, how to do nothing yeah. and just breathe. I have a little trouble letting myself lean into this. Uh, lean into what? Lean into being with my breath while I'm doing other things. Yes. Completely. Because I think that, you know, amidst all that scatter and uh, fuzzy sound that's going on all the time, that gr a great idea will pop. Well, you have a choice. Has it come yet? <laughs> well, keep on waiting. You know, it's. Uh, I, I think I. We don't want to make this into a rigid uh, kind of thing. For example, even it, it's not. You must follow each and every in-breath and out-breath throughout the day, or you're no good. You may hear it that way, but that's not what's being said. Okay. And to begin with, realistically, little by little, start to get the feeling of what it's like to keep the breath in mind. It may start in the beginning in simple situations like waiting on line, waiting for an elevator, sitting on the tee, and so forth. And then as you do that, more and more the breath becomes a vivid object for you. The more you practice it, the more it's going to be available for you. So it's, it will help you with your practice. That's why it helps you protect the mind, protect yourself. So, little by little, you may find that there are certain uh, work kinds of things that you can't unite with, with the breathing. You finally say, it doesn't help me to be with my breath when I vacuum. Okay, then it's all right. The main thing is the mindfulness. The, the reason that we're being, the conscious breathing is emphasized is to help us be mindful. Some of you may be drawn to the breath in a big way, so it becomes a real path for you, and you're doing it a good deal of the time. And some of you may just use it incidentally from time to time. That's fine. It's okay. Uh, let it unfold naturally. Now, again, if we get rigid, sort of, well, you're only allowed to do the dishes. You're not allowed to have any great ideas while you do the dishes. Uh, there may be a time when you have to make up your mind about something and you have a minute you know, to do it and you, and you have to wash the dishes. And so while you're washing your dishes, you may have to take into account a choice you have to make about your child, about what to say when you come down here, or you know, whatever it is. So don't make it into like a bureaucratic, rigid set of rules that you, that you have to follow uh, or you're no good, but rather a kind of set of guidelines that conscious breathing has the capacity to help you be more mindful. The key is the mindfulness. Uh, in terms of the great idea, though, some of that is a myth, I think. Uh, people will often say, well, if I do what you say, which is to try to be with each thing in turn, like one thing at a time, 
then I won't have time for, to make all kinds of uh, plans and good ideas and this and that. Uh, but try it. See what happens. There, you can also set aside time for planning. You can set, a set aside time for writing poetry or you know, whatever it is. But at least to some degree, if you begin to be more unified, bring a full mind and body, be awake in what you do. See if that doesn't help you be more efficient and more effective so that actually you do get more things done by, and the quality changes. If you just think it as common sense. If you're paying attention to whatever it is you're doing, don't you think the quality has a good chance of improving? Uh, that you have a better chance of seeing where you're off, that you have a better chance of learning something than if you're just all over the place. Um, your question is a very important one because this uh, culture, and I don't mean just America, and maybe it's been, but certainly in the modern world, doesn't put a premium on that at all. For example, the bumper sticker phenomena. Right? I'd rather be golfing. I'd rather be playing tennis. I'd rather be fishing. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, but you're driving a car. I mean, I, you know, uh, I hope that at least once in a while I'd rather be driving, you know, because you are driving. Whoop. Was that because you heard me give that example too many times already? Okay. <laughs> So we, we're either we'd rather be somewhere else, or we um, are walking with earphones, tuning out the environment, learning learning Portuguese while we're walking, you know, through. Uh, or the TV sets now, where you can have two things going on simultaneously, so that you can watch one program and decide if you want to watch another while it, while the commercial is going on. Um, and don't think that this is just uh, like a te high-tech TV phenomenon, because we're doing it. You know, it's like. While uh, your husband or wife is talking to you, you have a bumper sticker on your back, I'd rather be watching TV. <laughs> you know, uh, we're doing it all the time. So, we're trying to learn how to gracefully ease out of that and to bring, to me it means bringing quality and respect to life. You know, it means taking each thing, and, and it's, it's, the way the practice is set up is that everything is even. So that even what we think of as um, unimportant things, like washing the dishes or making a bed, are considered vital parts of the perfect in terms of practice. They're not less valuable than sitting up here and looking like someone spiritual. The reason that they're equally valuable, because that's what you're doing in that moment. That is your life. Whatever we encounter is our life. And so little by little, we're learning how to have it's a development of respect infinitely. Because it's, it's not that you're ever going to perfect it because it's, it's, life is such a challenge. But at least it gives us a direction. The direction is to pay attention, to be open, to learn, to do things with care. And so even if you just start moving in that direction, I, I think you may find it helps. And maybe that great idea will come. You know, Have you tried prayer yet? <laughs> okay. One last one or two. Yeah. How, how do you balance, especially in a situation where you don't want to be there, um, paying attention to the situation and paying attention to your breath. I mean, it's really, a lot of situations, it's really much more appealing to pay attention to your breath and not be in the situation at all. Yeah. Uh, let's, I'm not sure I understand, but let, try me. Okay. Let's say you're, some, uh, you see, the breath is exactly designed to accomplish what you're saying 
what I think your question is about. Let's say you're somewhere and suddenly you realize, first of all, you can't be in touch with the breath if you're distracted, right? So to be in touch with the breath means to be in touch with this breath. So already you're, you're in the present moment. Now, on t- let's say, but this breath that you're in touch with is enmeshed in a situation you don't want to be in. Okay. So if you weren't breathing, you'd still be in that situation. Okay. Now, th- the practice would be to turn to that situation. Okay. That situation, let's say you hate making the bed. Just hate it. Okay. So the, the uh, instructions would be uh, you would turn, to, you'd, it would be a distraction, just like following the breath. You turn to the bed, and suddenly, I hate this, and you're wandering off. You're not paying attention to making the bed. So you come back, just as with the breathing. Let's say it's very, very strong. Then you might look into the hate itself. Try to understand, what is it that I hate so much? Why don't I want to do the bed? Well, I'm a very important person. <laughs> I earn a lot of money, and I'm of such and such age, and it's, beyond, it's beneath me now. It was okay when I was a teenager and under the control of my parents. Even then it wasn't okay. You know, so now the breath can help you stay centered, to work with it. It's not that it's going to necessarily automatically make the situation from an unhappy situation into a happy one, but even without the breath, you have to deal with where you are. No, I'm thinking more in terms of, you know, a conversation with my mother-in-law. Okay, act it out. Do you mind? Act it out. <laughs> no, this is... You know, I it, don't want to be there. It's very difficult to talk with this woman, and right. then I have to really pay attention to her. Right. But I'd much rather pay attention to my breath. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, that's a, that, that's, that distinction is very important because there are two ways in which we work with the breath. One way is to become absorbed in it as an exclusive object, and you need wisdom to know when to do that and when to pay attention. I would pay attention to the mama-in-law. Well, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, so then when we come to that, it would be a misuse of the practice to hide in the breath and not listen to her. Probably it would be. I understand this. That's yeah. why I'm asking you how to balance it. Yeah. So okay. You don't succumb to the temptation. <laughs> well, the, the first breath. thing is you, be, you begin to see it. You be, that is, there's where wisdom comes in. Um, in a sense, what we're learning is every situation has got an intelligence built into it. Okay, so what is my correct situation right now? It's being with the mom-in-law. That's the truth. Now, but then you don't want to be with, with, with her. You want to be somewhere else. Okay, finally, this is not a mechanical formula. It's for you to, you know, if you don't want to deal with her, well, then no one's going to be able to, you know, I'm not going to follow you around with a gun and make you listen to your mother-in-law. But if you, in your own terms, come to the conclusion that even though I don't want to do it, there are many things in life we don't want to do, but we find that we must do that. This sounds like one of them. So, so uh, when you can, you begin to get to know the resistance, how much you don't like it. And perhaps you begin to see that that makes it even worse. The struggle, you know, to not be there, the disappointment of having to be there is quite exhausting. Uh, what if you could turn to your mother-in-law? Now, there are other practices to help you do that, like metta, loving-kindness. Uh, so that if you're having a very hard time with the mom-in-law, I would say, when the Ryan comes back, get some metta training. <laughs> so that this is at another time, you're sending love to her. Or seeing your mother-in-law through the eyes of compassion from the Lotus Sutra. That's a whole practice. See everyone through the eyes of compassion. That means everyone, even your mother-in-law. It's not easy to do, but that's how you grow. Many of the things in spiritual life are not what we naturally, in quotes, want to do. We're going against the grain. It's much easier, but correctly, mostly, the practice is not hiding from your mother-in-law in the breath, because that would not be the correct situation. This situation is you and your mother-in-law. 
If you're alone on the tee and there's nothing at stake, then you can sink into the breath. Even there, make sure you get off at the right stop. You know, this is not to make us bigger misfits than we already are. Yeah. So it's no magic. It's uh, with or without the breath, it's working with that situation. Your reactions. A lot of our practice is becoming mindful of our reactions. You know, things happen and we react. We don't like it. And after a while, uh, seeing that uh, we get to know the texture of resistance. We get to really feel what the texture of resistance is, and we learn how to, to work with it. And by and large, it becomes easier. Look, do you think I want to... When I'm, I, sometimes we give interviews for many hours. Do you think I'm totally dying to hear about your relationship and you know what, what happened or your last sitting 100% of the time? I'm not. Sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> okay, so I'm in this, in this little interview what? room. Right. <laughs> So I'm in this interview room, and you're going, you know, telling me about uh, something. Okay, and it's like the mother-in-law. It's not that different. Okay, either I'm tired because I've, you know, been there a lot, or my legs hurt because not only am I sitting every sitting, but I'm. Then interview time comes, you can all walk, but I have to sit again. Okay, so the breath helps me stay fresh. It helps me see that I'm kind of getting lost. I'm not really listening, and it's for me, it's been a remarkable help. I don't use it all the time, but I use it a fair amount, so that while I'm with you. I'm breathing in and breathing out. And if there's resistance, I'm not fighting with the resistance. I can hear the resistance, but the breath is help, helping me stay uh, mindful. That's the balance I'm asking about. It just sounds very tricky. Just do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the way, the way to learn how to do it is you have to feel your way into it. And there are adjunct practices like reflection. Reflection could mean uh, reflecting on what is accomplished by sitting there and not wanting to be there. Going to the root of your reaction. Investigating it. Metta and so forth. One, one last one. You have one? Well, <clears throat> this is sort of the same, but I have three young children. And just trying to imagine a situation where, like, maybe I'm trying to cook dinner and it's burning and one is hitting another. Another is, like, hanging on me. You know, you hate me. You never hug me. <laughs> the phone is ringing. You know, my husband walks in with an important message. I mean, it sounds like a funny joke, but it's no, I understand. It's like it. a terrifying, in a way, situation because, I mean, there's no. Who makes terrifying? Pardon? Who makes terrifying? Well, what's you know that something could go wrong, and very likely will, mm -hmm. and so that you know, like somebody will get poked with a pencil or I see. Okay. Somebody will you know, the dinner will burn. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Now and I do. And then from that point on, it's a cascading of tears until bedtime. Right. <laughs> and if I'm perfect, I can, like, figure out the most important thing that's going on and tackle that. You know, in the meanwhile, I'm trying to think, are the right pajamas ready? Did I, you know, are the blankets all, is the mattress on the floor? You know, you know I understand. I hear you loud and clear. Okay. Well, yeah. What do you do when you get yourself, in, which I do, like, Regularly. What's that song? Do you believe in magic? <laughs> yeah, there is no. It isn't magic. Uh, for either of your questions, it's the same question in a way. Um, the situation is as you describe it. It's a complicated one where there are many demands on you, and you have to stay alert, and you have to balance a lot of things. I certainly am in that situation. When we run retreats, it's like a ten-ring circus sometimes. Okay, so it's relative to the situation. That's why sitting is easy, right? It's a piece of cake. Your children are all asleep. Everything is, you know, and all you have to be, you're just accountable to yourself. Your breath, 
Okay, now that changes. Suddenly you've got... Okay, now in, in our, our practice, there's a, a sati, it means mindfulness. There's another term called sampajanya, and often they use together, sati, sampajanya. That means in a, it's sometimes translated as mindfulness with wisdom or mindfulness with clear comprehension. That's that, it's not a, a kind of a zeroing in on something to the exclusion of everything, but it's more a being awake, staying in touch from moment to moment, and more of a global sense of what's happening. That's wisdom, so that you know what to do, that you know what's appropriate. If you carry this narrow kind of attention, which is more appropriate in a retreat, and you just try to do that all the time, one thing at a time like that, it would be silly. I'll give you just very ordinary examples. On retreat sometimes we'll emphasize slow walking. Okay, but sometimes, at, like at IMS, we'll have a retreat and there are a hundred people on it. And in the old days, you used to have to wash the dishes and the pots. Now there's a machine. And, you know, we would talk about slow down, etc. And then you'd find people who are going to wash their pots with the, this is their feet, you know, like, like that. <laughs> okay, like that. And they're being mindful of what it feels like, lifting, moving, placing. Okay, there's no sampajanya there because there's no wisdom because what they would see is like the total situation is that if I walk this slowly and then wash the pot like this <laughs> okay there's a long line of yogis you know way out into the dining room so that is a that, that's a misunderstanding it's a misuse of the practice so the flexibility uh, the awareness helps you see that this is not a time for doing slow but doing fast and being as awake as you can being fast or the, you have to drive quickly to get someone to pick up a child. And if you don't get there, they'll get scared and so forth. Okay, the car may have to go fast. But can you learn to be, for the driver to be at, at peace in the midst of a fast-driving car? I think so. I, th- uh, I think you can learn how to be at peace inside yourself as you have to you know, juggle all of these balls. And that comes from the practice of being mindful to what's happening. But it can't eliminate the fact that you have a lot of things that you have to do and, and, wor- and be concerned about health and danger and so forth. This can't take that away. But what it can do is um, reduce the wear and tear on you. And that might help them. Oh, yes, it does. So it yeah. Okay, and what is being said by this sutra, what the Buddha is saying is that conscious breathing can help you stay composed in the midst of even that situation. But if you're not... if if it's hard to do that, it's all right. Just be with what you can be with. But it's not necessarily um, zoom lens, which you can do on a retreat with nothing else, but it's more wide-angle lens. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, you have to uh, do a few things at the same time, and you try to stay awake. You do eating meditation on a retreat, you can be right like that. But I suppose you eat with your family, you know, <laughs> and you're doing the kind of what we teach on a retreat, uh, you'd have a revolution going on in your household. So then you have to eat and talk, eat and listen. But even there, relative to what's going on, mindfulness, you can be mindful all the time. When you're that busy, let me just let's leave it at this, when you're that busy and it's that complicated, are you too busy to breathe? No, I'm not. Okay. Okay. Because obviously, because you're alive, you're breathing. So then if you're not too busy to breathe, you're not too busy to be mindful of what's happening. But don't hold the standard of the quality of attention that you can have on a retreat and have that judging you over your shoulder that I'm not able to do it that way with the, all the children because you won't be able to do it that way. It won't have the, the detail and the precision. Usually, it won't. That's okay. That's helpful. Yeah. Do you want to finish that up? Because I... No. Okay. Why don't we have uh, a moment... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.